I want to take a minute to tell you about Federal Access. Federal Access is our coaching and training platform that we develop for government contractors. The resources in Federal Access have helped our clients win over $13.6 billion in government contracts. When you become a member, you're going to get access to hundreds of documents, templates, training videos, on-demand webinars, and you get SME support from me. So if you have a question, you can email me directly anytime. Here's a special offer for Game Changers listeners. Visit federal-access.com forward slash Game Changers today and get started for just $29. That's federal-access.com forward slash Game Changers to get started for just $29. Now let's get into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everyone, Michael Lejeune here, and I will be your host today on Game Changers. And as always, we have a great episode lined up for you today. Uh, my guest is Stephen Coprince, and uh, if you heard, if you had, didn't hear our last podcast, I recommend you go back and take a listen to it. It was a great podcast from Stephen, and uh, today is, is going to be no exception here. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to what we are going to be talking about today. Stephen is a managing partner for Coprince Law, and uh, Stephen, why don't you take a minute to tell our listeners a little little bit about yourself and what you do yeah absolutely and thanks michael for having me back i guess the last uh podcast must have gone all right to be invited back for a second one. So i certainly appreciate being here <laughs> with you uh once again so yes uh you know coprins llc uh, is a government contracts boutique federal government contracts boutique law firm boutique is kind of the the word that we use in the legal practice to mean we're focused on a particular area of law nothing nothing but federal government contracts we've got six attorneys here we do federal contracts law. We represent clients uh, coast to coast, uh, all over the country, a few outside the country, uh, everything from FAR and DFARS and, and uh, regulatory compliance uh, to protest claims, appeals, that sort of litigation, to paperwork, uh, transactional items that we, as we call it in government contracts, such as joint venture agreements, team agreements, helping folks with their socioeconomic certifications, hub zone, service disabled, 8A, what have you. So we're, we're pretty broad uh, within the government contracts field. If it's a government contracts legal issue, uh, we probably handle it other than DCAA accounting type questions because we're not CPAs. Uh, that said, if it's not a government contracts issue, then we're going to refer you to somebody else because we are uh, 100% focused on federal contracts. Yeah, and, and I love that you brought that up first because I always want to tell people when, when you need a lawyer that's and you're working in government contracting, don't go to the guy that does your will or something like that. That that's not the guy. You know, he you want a specialty firm, like you said, a boutique firm that specializes in this because you're gonna know so much more. And I and I think in the long run save a lot of money by working with a specialist that knows this than somebody who's got to figure it out on the fly. So I, I really appreciate that uh, about you guys and, w- and what you do. So today we're going to be talking a bit about joint venturing. And so, you know, I know there's a lot of questions out there on joint venturing and, and some of the differences that are out there. And so, you know, there's always a lot of interest in this topic. And so, you know, the, the SBA has their new, you know, mentor protege program and that sort of thing. What What's the, the relationship to this program and to joint venturing? Can you explain that? Yeah, great question. And, and we are seeing just so much interest in joint venturing. It's always been part of the federal contract landscape, but 
in recent years, as you see contract requirements getting bigger, I won't use the word consolidation or bundling because those are terms of art, but bigger requirements, more complex requirements, as well as new tools offered by the SBA to encourage joint venturing, we're seeing a lot more interest in forming these types of arrangements. And so one of those important tools that the SBA rolled out last year, uh, effective last October, is called the All Small Mentor Protege Program. And the All Small Mentor Protege Program is an expansion, essentially, of uh, a program that had been uh, available to 8 day firms for, for many years, and a very popular Mentor Protege Program for 8 day firms. And the Mentor Protege Program is an assistance program. It's a program under which a typically a larger, though it doesn't have to be a large, a larger, more experienced, more capable business um, tr provides various forms of business development assistance to help a smaller, less experienced, less capable business grow and develop to increase that learning curve, uh, make it make it easier for that firm to grow, especially in the federal sector. And that's what it is. It's an assistance program. Uh, but when folks call me about the Mentor Protege program, there is a common uh, theme and it is hey, we think this Mentor-Protégé program is essentially a joint venture. You know, with the Mentor-Protégé is talked about in, as in one breath with joint venturing as though Mentor-Protégéing is a form of teaming relationship. And it's not, you know, and I understand why people are, have that misconception because there is one connection. <laughs> the, the, one of the benefits of the Mentor-Protégé program, of course, the protégé is getting all sorts of benefits, hopefully. They're getting business development assistance. Why would a mentor want to do this program? Why would a mentor be interested in providing free stuff to a small business? Well, maybe because they get warm, fuzzy feeling about providing help to small business. But, you know, this is this is capitalism. You know, there's got to be typically some some sort of financial reason why a company is going to do something. And one of the reasons it, 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 one of the benefits that the SBA has offered that helps both mentors and protégés is the SBA has said, look, you know, the ordinary rule for a joint venture that's going to pursue any species of set-aside contract, which means a small business set-aside, 8A, hub-zoned, woman-owned, service-able, any of those contract types. Ordinarily, if you want to join venture for that contract, both members of the joint venture have to be small businesses under whatever standard is assigned to that contract. And that's, that's the underlying rule. The Mentor-Protégé program provides one, and in fact, the only exception to that rule. And if you have an SBA approved, only SBA, approved mentor-protege agreement, then the mentor and protege can, they don't have to, but they can form a joint venture to pursue set-aside contracts based only on the protege size. And the mentor size is not considered. So it's a powerful benefit. I mean, you could have a contract, for example, a solicitation comes out with a $7.5 million size standard. You got a $5 million protege and a $500 million mentor. They can form a joint venture and be eligible for that contract. So it allows the mentor to be part of the prime contract team um, in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be eligible to do. It's a benefit of the mentor-protege program. But the confusion that I see is kind of conflating the idea of mentor-protege and joint venture together. The relationship of mentor-protege to joint venture is just what I said, <laughs> that it allows one of the members of the joint venture to be a large business. That's it. That's the only relationship that the Mentor-Protege program has to joint venturing. And so, you know, if, if you're a small business and you want to joint venture with another small business, you can have a Mentor-Protege agreement if you want, I suppose, but you don't need one. And so well, that's the first question I ask folks when they come to me and say, hey, I want to form a Mentor-Protege so we can joint venture. Is your partner a large business? No, they're another small business. Well, then you don't need a Mentor-Protege agreement. You can have one if you want it, and you know, there's nothing wrong with it. 
but you don't need it. So those, those concepts are, are commonly conflated. And again, there's people come to me and they say, I want to mentor protege for this contract as though that's a special kind of um, teaming arrangement. And it's not. It, it's an assistance agreement that allows a joint venture partner to be a large business. That's it. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important point for a lot of people because I do hear that. I hear people saying, "Oh, we need to, we need this, you know, mentor protege almost agreement," uh, and and they say that in place of a joint venture, and that's just not not the right case. I have I've kind of a question, kind of off topic here about the mentor protege. Uh, just some of the things you said. I think most of the 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 small businesses going into that think that a mentor, you know, the big business, will replace the need for uh, a lot of things in their business. So we'll, we'll replace the need for them to have their own business development team. We'll replace the need for them to have their own proposal team. It'll replace the need for them to go to conferences and training and things like that and educate themselves. It'll re replace the need for consultants or things like that. What's your take on that as far as what are the mentors required to do for the protege under that program? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And I think you're right to hit on that. You know, the idea behind the mentor protege program is not that the mentor necessarily does things for the protege, because that's not necessarily mentoring. It's a fuzzy line, but the idea is that the mentor helps the protege learn to do those things themselves. And so it doesn't necessarily and probably shouldn't mean that the mentor just comes in and does back office support for the protege or comes in and does the marketing for the protege because protege isn't learning anything from it. It's getting assistance and SBA may approve that. You know, they may approve it. Now they may not. I mean, it, you know, these things can be fuzzy, but it's not the right way to structure one of these agreements because these mentor-protege agreements are time limited. The, the, the length of time that a particular mentor and protege can work together in that arrangement is a maximum of six years, three years, then a reapproval period for potentially another three. After that, the, the agreement expires. And so if you're a protege firm and for whatever reason you have gotten SBA to approve the mentor just doing stuff for you, your business is going to be in some real trouble after that six-year period. In fact, it's, it's almost you know, you've, you've gone the wrong direction. You become dependent on your mentor. The idea is to do the opposite for the mentor to teach you how to do uh, business better on your own. So when that mentor protege agreement expires, you're in a much better place than you would be if it had never existed in the first place. So that's, that's what I think it's, you know, it's, there's the question about what SBA will approve. And this program is so new that it's hard to, to you know, wrap our arms exactly around that. Um, but beyond just getting the agreement approved, which I think a lot of folks, they come, they just, <laughs> to me, and they just say, just put in whatever. I want to get the agreement approved. And that's, from a business standpoint, that's not the right answer. <laughs> you know, this is, take the mentoring part of this agreement seriously. And, you know, that should involve, in my opinion, having the mentor teaching the protege how to do business better rather than just doing business on the protege's behalf. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And and the reason I brought it up is, you know, as you were talking about how the you know, the benefits to the protege, I, I just I recall, you know, we you and I both speak at conferences all over the country and there's always somebody or a handful of people we run into that are in this program and will and, and you and I sell services to to these contractors 
And the moment we open their mouth, their or our mouth, they're like, "Nope, I'm in a in a mentor protege program, and I'm going to run it by their lawyers. I'm going to run it by their whatever." And I really, I don't have to do anything. I just dump it on them, and I'm like. How long have you been in this program? Oh, I just got in it. Well, clearly you don't know what you're doing because <laughs> that that's not what you, you should be doing this stuff on your own and learning from them, not, you know, funneling your business through them because at the end of that six or nine year period, you're going to be out of business because you're not going to know how to run it. And so, well, then that's exactly right. And there's a common misconception because there are several with this program that once you're in it, that the rules for working together are different. So folks will come to me and say, Hey, I've got an SBA approved mentor protege agreement. Now, every time I bid on a contract, the, S- the agency has to consider my mentor's past performance and experience, right? And the answer is no, they don't. <laughs> you know, if you're going to join venture together on the contract, then yes, they do. If the mentor is going to be your subcontractor, then the FAR says they should consider the past performance, but you don't just get to take on the mentor's past performance and experience just because they're your mentor. Same with percentage of work performed. People come and say in the services industry and say, hey, it's my mentor, so now I can sub them way more than 50% of the work, right? No, (laughs) you still have to abide by the limitation on subcontracting, which are no different than when for a mentor than for any other subcontractor. So the mentor project program is designed by SBA not to be a vehicle for pass-throughs or for mentors to be doing business on the project's behalf, but as a vehicle for uh, again, the larger, more experienced businesses to provide, you know, that sort of targeted business development training to help small businesses grow and develop their own capabilities. So I, I see the same thing. Folks looking at the mentor protege agreement more like a crutch than as a learning tool. And that's exactly the wrong attitude, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah not only is it a crutch, they're, they're looking at it as a formal joint venture to do business on everything. And that is that's a huge mistake. And so, I mean, that kind of leads to my, my next question was going to be, you know, what are the differences between the mentor protege joint venture and a regular joint venture? Cause I, I, I think people just, they just lump it all into one without really understanding the differences. Maybe you can shed some light. You've already done that a little bit. Shed some light on some of those other differences for us. Yeah. And the answer is, it's a great question. Cause the answer is there really aren't any, you know, that that's why I that question because people come to me and they say hey i want to form a mentor protege joint venture so now you know the work split within the joint venture must mean that the mentor can do all the work or most of the work or it must mean that the mentor can have the project manager or you know any other variation on the standard joint venturing requirements and again you know the the mentor protege program allows the mentor to be a large business that's a huge you know variation from the ordinary requirements but that's really it. I mean, the, the, if you're going after any sort of socioeconomic set-aside contract with a joint venture or a small business contract as a mentor-protege joint venture where the mentor is large, then the SBA has a series of you know, 16, 18 requirements uh, or so that must be put in the joint venture agreement that require, for example, the protege to own at least 51% of the joint venture, protege to have the project manager as their employee, protege to be the managing venture, protege to do at least 60% or excuse me, at least 40% of the joint ventures work. And those requirements are exactly the same when the joint ventures between a mentor and a protege as between two small businesses. It's really, you know, there's this misconception that the substantive requirements of what must be in a joint venture agreement change when the joint venture partners are mentor. And the only substantive change again, is that the, the fact that the mentor is large is not a deal breaker as it otherwise would be. 
Yeah. And and just to clarify something that you said, you know, just because you're in the mentor-protege program doesn't mean you have a joint venture going with them on everything under the sun, right? I mean, I mean, like if, if we're going to go after a specific contract, there should probably be a joint venture document just for that contract, or how would you, how would you approach that? Yeah, absolutely. And so the mentor-protege agreement, again, is not a teaming arrangement of any stripe. It is an assistance agreement. So when SBA comes in and says, you're approved as mentor-protege, you do not have a joint venture at that point in time. You do not even have a prime sub-team at that point. What you have is an assistance agreement that has been blessed by SBA. So if the next step is you say, hey, we want to pursue this upcoming opportunity as a team, you've got to decide then, hey, do, is that going to be as a joint venture or as a prime sub-team? And if it's going to be as a joint venture, you got to take the next step of actually forming the joint venture, which is separate. The SBA has not formed or approved a joint venture for you. They have approved an assistance agreement. So you still got to follow all the requirements that SBA has for joint venture, which includes you know, having a, a written joint venture agreement, uh, which may include mandatory provisions depending on the nature of the parties and the contract they're pursuing. Uh, it's got to have its own EIN, DUNS, CAGE, SAM profile, you know, all that sort of stuff. And that's a separate question than whether you have the mentor-protege agreement. So that's still got to be separately done. And if you're going after an 8A contract, the joint venture has to be separately approved by SBA by a different office typically than approved uh, the mentor-protege agreement. If you're going after an STVSB contract with VA, the VA's got to approve the joint venture. And so, again, the, the fact that SBA had approved the mentor-protege agreement does not create, establish, or approve a joint venture. Yeah, and I just – I think that's really important for people to understand because – there's there's nothing worse than approaching a contract and, and not knowing what you don't know, right? And so you go to do this, and then you realize there's so many steps you need to do that you didn't know. And and so it just it creates frustration and roadblocks and challenges, and uh, and we want to try to eliminate that by, you know, bringing information just like this to the forefront here. So you, you mentioned a couple of different things, and one of them was about the work share in in a joint venture and i know that can definitely be confusing to a lot of folks i, I mean i hear numbers tossed around all the time where, you know is it 50 percent? is it 51 percent? you know i think you mentioned 40 percent earlier and there's different percentages that get thrown out what are the actual rules for the joint venture work share yeah good question so when you're bidding a set-aside contract, again, because this is what we're talking about here, of course you can join venture for unrestricted contracts, but we're talking about set-aside opportunities, um, small business or some socioeconomic subcategory, and you're doing that as a joint venture, there are typically, and, you know, there's an exception when it's a small business set-aside and both parties are small businesses, but let's assume not. Assume we've got a mentor in place or going after an 8A contract and one party's 8A, the other's a small business. In those cases, there are, are two requirements that are imposed on the joint venture. And I think it's helpful to view them kind of as a, as a two-step process. So the first thing to keep in mind or, or to recognize is that the joint venture itself is the prime contract. The two, the two parties who make up the joint venture will perform the work on the joint venture's behalf. But that entity that you've established that, again, has its own SAM profile, EAN, EAN Dunn's cage written agreement, that is the prime contract. And the prime contractor on a set-aside contract has a limitation on subcontracting. And so if it's a services contract, for example, then there's a 50% amount that can be subcontracted. And we'll, we'll keep it at kind of at a simplified level here and, and not get into the nuances of similarly situated entities and all that sort of stuff. So let's just kind of 
slightly oversimplify things. So the first step is for the joint venture to figure out how much work can be subcontracted to companies that aren't part of the joint venture. Because you know? the SBA will consider if you, you can say, hey, the joint venture is subbing to its members, but SBA will disregard those sorts of distinctions. So how much is the joint venture going to subcontract to other companies, if, if anything? You know, and there's a limit on that. It will depend on the nature of the contract, construction, services, manufacturing, et cetera. So let's say it's the services contract is a 50% limit on subcontracting. So the first thing is for the joint venture partners to say, hey, we're going to subcontract zero, we're going to subcontract 50 or something in between. So they figure that out. Let's say they go with 50. They say we're going to subcontract 50% of the work, maximum we're allowed to do. The next step then, once once you figure that out, that's for the 40, 60 split comes in, the, the minimum 40-60 split, because the requirement is that of the work that the joint venture will self-perform, that is the work that's not being subcontracted to third parties, that the managing member, and that would be the protege member in a manner protege joint venture, must perform at, le at least 40% of that remainder. And so if the joint venture is doing services, subcontracts 50% out to a third party or multiple third parties will self-perform 50%. Then the protege or the managing member or firms holding that designation can get a little complicated, but the right firm or firms, it's usually just one, has to do at least 40% of the remainder. So 40% of 50%, which ends up being 20% of the whole. <laughs> you know, and so you know, I've had this conversation many times, many events, people's heads start exploding. There's math going on, percentages, things like that. But I found that if you, you think of it as a two-step process, first figure out the subcontracting then figure out how you're going to divide what's left. So that's typically the best way to conceptualize it. Yeah, and, and I think that is, you know, you start doing all the math. And I, I, I've helped my daughters. I have a, a, um, a junior and a seventh grader, and I've helped them recently in math. And I'm like, wow, I'm not good at this anymore. And so I, I think that's a good reason to bring in somebody like yourself to help them figure out what are the right percentages and you know what what's going on here because I, I think it can get confusing super fast and so you know, it it absolutely can and the rules are as I said are not quite as simplified as I, I made them out to be for our example because you say well fifty percent of what you know what is it just is it labor costs is it amount paid what about similarly situated entities so it, it can get confusing and I've had discussions an hour hour and a half with clients on this topic alone, the, the work split, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page because these co folks want to make sure that their plan's compliant, which is the right approach. Right. And, and I think some people even drill it down further into where they get into certain task areas. And so, you know, there's an overall contract, but there may be 16 task areas and, and yeah, I'm probably complicating it, but there may be four of those task areas where the prime, the protege says, I, I don't want to touch that at all, but I feel like I've got to do 40% or 60% of that task area. What do I need to do? So I, I think it can get, there's layers of difficulty when breaking it down. And I think that's where, you know, you can come in and say, well, here's the rules about that task area and how it can be done. So I, I really appreciate right. that having an expert to talk to about that. So, you know, a, a lot of people think they can just go and sign a joint venture agreement, whether it's, you know, with their mentor or with somebody else. Are, are there situations where the SBA needs to approve this before they move forward? Or, or is this something I can just go and do? 
Yeah, so there are two instances, and I think I alluded to this earlier. I want to be clear about it. It's a good question. There, there are two instances where the joint venture agreement has to be pre-approved by somebody. Uh, keep in mind that if you're going in as mentor protege, if, if one of the joint venture partners is a large business, the SBA has to approve the mentor protege agreement to allow that joint venture to bid in the first place. Otherwise, it doesn't qualify because the mentor is large and the joint venture doesn't qualify for size reasons. So there's this, the size question. And the mentor protege agreement has to be approved for that exception to apply by the date of the initial offer, the initial proposal date, the initial priced offer. So that's that's got to be in place if, you, if you're relying on the exception from affiliation that program provides. The next question is, okay, we, we talked about how the mentor project agreement isn't a joint venture agreement. So when does the SBA or somebody have to approve your joint venture agreement in advance? Um, and what happens in cases where they don't approve it in advance? Because that's, a, a, you know, I think the, the flip side of the coin where folks are sometimes a little bit um, too loosey-goosey with what they're doing. So if you're going after an 8A, 8A set-aside or sole source, then the SBA has to pre-approve that joint venture agreement before award, not before uh, proposal date, uh, bid date, but before the award of the contract. And so that's, that lines up with how SBA does 8A contracts generally anyway. The way that the SBA works is that technically an 8A contract is at a a contract between the procuring agency and the SBA as the prime contractor and the SBA subcontracts everything to the 8A firm. That's how it technically is set up. And so the SBA must pre-approve every 8A award in advance, including joint ventures. And they will do that with the joint venture agreement. Different SBA district offices around the country kind of have different preferences as to how they do that. Um, you know, when they want that agreement submitted, when they'll look at it, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is 8A, any 8A contract SBA has to pre-approve the joint venture or an amendment if it's the second uh, or third contract that joint venture is pursuing, perhaps, uh, to that joint venture agreement before awards. So that's, that's item number one. Uh, number two, um, if you're going after a VA, uh, SDVOSB, Service Disabled Veteran-Owned Small Business, or VOSB, because the VA has veteran-owned small business set-asides too, if you're going after that type of contract as a joint venture, then the VA the CVE, Center for Verification and Evaluation of VA, has to pre-approve the joint venture before bid, not before award like SBA, but before the bid date. You have to actually be separately verified by the CVE, the joint venture does. And it's not as, you know, it's not enough that the managing member is itself verified. That's a requirement. But now the joint venture has to separately go to CVE, apply. It's, a, it's an easier process than the underlying application. Now, they're mostly just looking at the joint venture agreement, but the joint venture has to end up in vet biz with that seal next to its name by the bid date, or the joint venture doesn't qualify for that VA, SCVOSB or VOSB award. And that's it. Those are the, that's the entire list of when a joint venture agreement must be pre-approved by somebody. And so if you're going after a small business set aside, you're going after hub zone set aside, woman owned, non-VA SCVOSB, like a DOD SCVOSB set aside, there is no pre-approval process. That doesn't mean nobody will ever look at that joint venture agreement. You know, and that's, that's I think, where people um, get a little bit too uh, loosey-goosey with, with requirements because they don't need to pre-approve it, so no big deal. You know, we'll, we'll just you know, download an agreement from the Internet, some source, and fill it out, and we're, we're good to go. Um, the problem with those other programs is that while somebody won't look at it in advance, and you can even if you ask, SBA says, we don't do that. We don't look at these things in advance. Uh, the joint venture agreement can be looked at on the back end. If the joint venture is identified as the 
successful awardee, a parent successful awardee or actual awardee, however the agency is playing it, and somebody files a challenge, and that's usually a competitor, but it could be the contract officer, it could be the SBA itself, then the SBA will look at that agreement, and they will make sure that if it's you know one of these types of solicitations where they're mandatory joint venture provisions, remember I talked about maybe there's 16, 18 mandatory requirements, if any of them aren't in that document, or they're missing, or you've got something in there that undermines that provision, that conflicts with it, then they're probably just going to take your contract away. <laughs> you know, there's no second chances. So you go to you go to VA and submit it for approval. They don't, you know, something in the joint venture agreement doesn't align. What do they do? They send it back to you and say fix it. And then you go fix it, and you're good to go. So the the downside of the lack of prior approval is that by the time somebody takes a look at it, a contract is hanging in the balance. And if you don't get the agreement exactly right, then that contract's probably going away. Mm-hmm. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, something you said brought up a question here that is, it's going to sound a little bit off topic, but I want to throw this out there because I know I've been asked this by people and I want to get, again, the expert's opinion on this. You, you have a, a small business who goes into a mentor-protege program and they're doing joint ventures with their mentor And then all of a sudden they meet this other big systems integrator and they want to do some work with them. Are there any challenges with them doing joint ventures with them as well? Well, you know, you you can only joint venture with a large business, of course, if you're in a mentor-protege relationship. So let's say that you're in a mentor-protege relationship with a large business and you meet another large business you'd like to do business with. There's nothing that prohibits you from doing business with another company. You know, the Meta-Proje agreement is not an exclusivity arrangement. That question comes up sometimes, too. It's kind of the flip side of, don't I get to use my mentor's experience and past performance for everything? No, you don't. It also doesn't mean that you're locked into doing business exclusively with your mentor. You can go and, you know, do business with anybody you want. The, the problem, of course, comes if you say, well, now I'd like to join venture with this other large business. They're not your mentor. You know? So you can't form a joint venture with a large business to pursue set-aside work if they're not your SBA-approved mentor. And it is technically possible for a small business to have two mentors concurrently with SBA approval. It's not necessarily clear that you'd want to do that. Um, but you could technically have two mentors at the same time if SBA approved. But barring that, then you say, hey, I want to do business with this other large business. You're completely allowed to do that, but you would have to do it if you're going to be the prime as a prime sub team with them following the limitation on subcontracting. Couldn't join venture with another large business. Yeah, I, I think that's an important point. And there are people who think, well, okay, am I just locked in with this mentor? And I'll, you know, hey, I've got great opportunities in a totally different business line that my current mentor is not interested in. Oh, you know, and I've got this, you know, this other company interested in doing that work. Maybe I get a second mentor or maybe I just do joint ventures. So I, I think it's a very important point that you clarified there because it is very confusing to people that they can't just do an unlimited number of agreements like, the, you know, the small, the mentor protege agreements like that and, uh, and how all of that stuff works, which kind of brings me to one of my last questions here is, you know, what mistakes you know, do you frequently see businesses making when it comes to drafting like these joint venture agreements? Yeah, and I think that the the biggest mistake I see in this is, you know, we've got an industry in government contracting that's really focused on the capture 
on the, on the win, you know, and that's, of course, it's critical. You gotta, you know, you're not going to be a successful government contractor if you can't write a good proposal, learn how to meet your customers' needs, invest the time and money to develop those, develop your P-win and all these sorts of things that are, you know, part of my world, but it's not my expertise because I'm not a capture guy. And that's great. But we see the same companies who are spending hours and hours and dollar after dollar on their proposals. And then when it comes time to do a joint venture agreement, then they try to go do it on the cheap. And what do I mean by that? I mean, they're using what, you know, it's a dirty word in my, in my practice. They use a template from somewhere. And where's that somewhere? It's often an agreement they used a few years ago, an agreement their partner used at some point in the past. Sometimes it's an agreement from a different program. So they're saying, hey, I want to go after a hub zone set aside. I had this 8A joint venture agreement we used a couple years ago. I ought to do the trick. Um, so they're, they're pulling these documents from somewhere. And, you know, and the problem with that is twofold. Number one, a lot of those documents weren't right to begin with. In other words, they, at the time they were written, nobody ever looked at them. Nobody, I mean, SBA, you know, someone like that. Um, and there was something wrong with that agreement even at the time. So it was a, it was a bad source material, and we see that. The, the second problem is that the SBA is continually updating the rules. So, you know, there, there's all these requirements. And as I mentioned, you miss even one of them, you're, you're out of luck. They did a SBA did a massive overhaul of their joint venture rules last summer, uh, effective August 24th of 2016. And so, you know, any template that predates that date, and in some cases even later, because SBA made a few tweaks to the rules even after August 24th, even if it was good at the time it was written, you say, hey, here's one that worked for us back in 2015. We were protested and we survived the protest. Let's use this again. It's outdated now. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work anymore. The agreement is not no longer valid. And so we've had situations where that's happened, where someone's used a template uh, agreement that was good at the time it was written, but is no longer good. And if they just give me a call on the front end, because that's the problem. You know, people call me on the back end. They've been protested. They're looking to defend the protest, say, here, here's the agreement, defend this, save my contract. And the unfortunate answer is if the agreement's outdated or just doesn't include the right provisions, I can't. I can't. You know, the, your, your agreement is set in stone as of the date you submitted that proposal. You can certainly update it for the next contract, for the next proposal. But if you've submitted a proposal and the joint venture agreement you had at the time was based on an outdated template, you're, you're out of luck for that, for that, for that proposal. So... The last thing I will say on that with respect to templates is, you know, the, the SBA's, as I understand it, overall guidance out of the Washington, D.C. office to their district offices is, hey, we really shouldn't be in the business of providing joint venture templates to companies. But some of the district offices do it anyway. And I think they're trying to do the right thing, especially for 8A companies, by helping them. <laughs> um, so here's a template, uh, 8A company. Um, go ahead and use this when you're forming a joint venture. The problem we've seen is that some of those are outdated. <laughs> you know, that some of those are outdated. So people are getting templates from their SBA office. Some of them are not outdated, but some are. And so that's an awkward situation for us too, because if that uh, contractor fills out that template, it's going to be approved by the 8A office. But if they get protested um, by a competitor anyway, it's a different SBA office that will review it and they will still say it's not valid and they'll lose the contract. So the bottom line is be very wary of, of templates. You know, that's what we see people doing. They're very wary of templates. So that's, that's the item number one. <clears throat> the second item I would say that, that pops up is 
when, when especially large businesses, I'll say not all, you know, I'm not anti-large business. We got a lot of good large business clients, um, but some are, are used to kind of being the big gorilla in the room, right? They, they are, they're used to kind of controlling things. And so when they see the laundry list of joint venture requirements that the small business be the managing member, the small business have the project manager, small business own 51%. They start thinking about ways to write around those, <laughs> you know, okay, you're the managing venture, but let's define, you know, what managing venture is to say, well, every decision of the members has to be un unanimous, you know, or you're okay. You've got to have the project manager, but we're going to have a, you know, a business manager who has all the powers of the project manager too. <laughs> you know, so they, in other words, you, and this only happens in a minority of cases, but we get documents back from large partners that essentially undermine the requirements. They'll, they'll, they'll say the right words that the SBA regulations ask them to say, but in the next breath, they'll contradict that or make, you know, make a statement that really defeats the purpose. You know, you're not really the managing venture if everything has to be unanimous between the members. And so those provisions, too, can defeat eligibility. There's a case that came out not that long ago in the SDVSB world where there's a joint venture that required supermajority voting for basically every you know, business decision. And the SBA, SBA Office of Hearings and Appeals and federal court all said, yet you said that the SUVSB is a managing venturer, but when we look at the totality of the agreement, they're not really. You know, it's not enough to say the word. They have to be that in, in, in fact. And so that's the second problem that we see is attempts to write around the mandatory requirements. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it, it seems like you can solve all of these problems, mistakes, whatever you want to call them with a simple phone call to somebody who knows what they're doing. And so, yeah, if there's a lesson learned from literally every question I've asked you today, it's take the time proactively to call someone like Steven, his firm and say, Hey, I've got a question I need to run by you. I've got a document that I'd like to run by you. Do it proactively instead of reactively when you hit a problem on the back end. Even if it's just once or twice a year checking in to make sure the documents are still up to date, that's better than you know getting that dreaded call from the SBA and it's not a, hey, you've won uh, this or that. It's a, hey, we've got a problem. You know, getting that call from your contracting yeah. officer or whoever it may be. So I, I think the being yeah. proactive is a big thing. And I think it costs a lot less money to be proactive. And, hey, can you check this out instead of, hey, can you defend me because I've backed myself in a corner? Uh, <laughs> it's a lot cheaper right. on the front end to do it that way. And so that that's the smart move. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, and I'm biased, but, I, you know, I'm a small business you know, owner myself, and we represent mostly small businesses, but also large, and everyone's got to manage their dollars accordingly. But it's exactly right that if you come to me and say, hey, can you either write me a joint venture agreement from scratch or just review the one we've gotten for compliance, that's a, you know, a few hours at most of our, our time here at the firm typically when you're going to get something that's compliant, whereas if you come to us with something after the fact, you've been protested, you're trying to defend it, we're either just going to say we can't do that because it's just so blatantly non-compliant, or we're we're going to spend a lot more time and money trying to argue, for example, provisions that may look like they undermine something. That's kind of a gray area. So now we're we're just arguing and arguing and spending your time and money trying to trying to defend something that may not work. You don't know what the end result's going to be good. So 
you know, like I said, I, I'm biased, but when it comes to issues of compliance, because this, this should be considered a compliance issue and it should be considered a capture issue too. Because if you're going to spend all that time and money writing your proposal, as you should, then a little bit of investment to make sure that you're actually eligible for the award is, is well warranted. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, I, I'm biased too. You know, it makes sense to spend a little money almost as in insurance that you're doing the right thing than it does to spend a lot of money on the back end for something that may you may just be throwing you know, money out the window for. So a, as we wind down here, I, I want to ask one last question here. You know, you said something about uh, the SBA's three and two rule for joint ventures. Could you quickly tell us what that is? Explain that to our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that's a great question because that's something that comes up um, kind of um, almost every time I'm talking about joint ventures before I even get to that slide. I, and I usually have that slide if I'm talking about joint ventures for any any length of time. But someone will probably raise their hand and ask about it beforehand because it's this, it's this rule that's out there that's, that's little understood. It's important, but it doesn't mean what most people think it means or say what most people think it says. So three and two is the SBA's regulatory uh, expression of the SBA's philosophy of what a joint venture is. That's how I interpret this. And maybe, you know, if you have an SBA official on the, on the podcast sometime, they'll say, no, 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 it's not philosophical. But I, I think it is. I mean, it, SBA's philosophy of a joint venture is that a joint venture is limited. You know, it's limited in two ways. Number one, it's limited in time in the duration in which it's going to do business, just temporarily limited. And number two, it's limited in amount. It's limited in the amount of business it does. And the SBA's philosophy is if the entity is doing business for too long or it's doing too much business, then it's not really a joint venture. It's an ongoing operating entity. So that's, that's the philosophical underpinning of the rule. And so to make that rule, you know, to make that philosophy into a rule, SBA has adopted what's commonly known as the three and two rule. And it has two components. Um, it says, well, first of all, it has a penalty com component. And the penalty is not you can't get a contract. You know, folks often say to me, hey, if I violate three and two, I can't get a contract. And outside the 8 day program where SBA has the authority to just deny someone a contract um, because they have to pre-approve 8 day awards, that's not true. It's not a limit on contracts. What it is, it's an affiliation rule, an affiliation rule that says that if you violate three and two, the SBA may find the members of the joint venture affiliated all the time. And you don't want that. It's a size rule. Affiliation means that when the SBA determines whether you're a small business, are they going to add anybody else's size to your company's size? And you don't want that. Even if the result would still be small, you don't want to be carrying around someone else's size. So what I say is, look, it's an affiliation rule, but feel free to treat it as a limit on joint ventures, as, as is commonly misunderstood, because you don't want to be affiliated. <laughs> but it's important to know what it, where it really is. So that's that's the background on what what the SBA believes and what the penalty for it is. It's affiliation. Hmm. What does the rule say? It, it says two things. Um, it says that if once a, the first part says that if a joint venture wins an award, wins an award, then a two year clock starts ticking as of the award date. So if we're sitting here, you know, it's uh, let's say it's uh, October 1st, 2017 is the day you win a contract. You say October 1st, 2017, two year clock starts ticking in which you can submit new bids, in which that joint venture can submit new bids and still count as a joint venture. So until, you know, September 30th, 2019, you can submit bids under that joint venture. And if you submit any bids after that, then the SBA may find you affiliate. So that's the temporal part of it. You know, that you've got a two-year window based on the first award 
under which you can submit bids. And that, that's it. So that, that's part number one. The second part is the too much business part. And so the second part says, okay, even within that two year period, once you win your third award, you need to stop bidding. Again, it's not a limit on how many contracts you could actually win. It's a limit on when you got to stop bidding in both cases. And so if, if say you win your first contract on October 1st, 2017, and then November 1st, you win one. Then December 1st, you win one. After December 1st, you got to stop bidding with that joint venture or you could be found affiliated. So that's the too much business part. And it's again, it's, it's a, you know, once you hit a certain target, two years or three contracts, then you got to stop bidding. That, that's what the SBA says. Um, and that's, that's the rule. You know, I, I understand kind of SBA's philosophy, but I strongly disagree with the rule. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, and the reason I disagree with the rule is, and SBA is, is very clear on this point is that, it's incredibly easy to avoid. <laughs> it's incredibly easy to avoid because the rule is directed at the joint venture entity. You know, at the start of our conversation, we talked about how every joint venture has a SAM profile, an EIN, a ton, a cage code. It's a legal entity, whether it's formed as an LLC, as many are, or a partnership, it's a legal entity. And so the way that you avoid three and two is when you hit either of those markers, the two years or the three contracts, you simply form a new joint venture. You know, drop off to your secretary of state's office if that's what you're doing as an LLC, Get a new EIN, Dunn's Cage, Sam, joint venture agreement, all that stuff, and you're good to go. So it is not a limit on how much joint venturing two companies can do together. It's a limit on the joint venture entity itself, that entity that has its own Sam profile. And so, you know, you see cases out there in the world in which, you know, contractors have joint venture A, joint venture B, joint venture C, or it's you know, joint venture two, three. It's like Roman numerals, like the summer movie sequels, right? So, and that's why they're doing it. That's why they keep forming new joint ventures, because they're aware of this rule. So, again, you know, the, the penalty for the rule is affiliation. And affiliation is the question about whether two companies share common control. And in my opinion, this is why I think it's a silly rule, that if the same two companies win the same work over the same amount of time or at the same amount of money, I don't see any basis to say, hey, there's a greater control if they do it with one joint venture than with four. I just don't understand it. And so the rule to me ends up being kind of a gotcha for people who don't know the rule. Three and two is a gotcha for people who didn't know well enough to go form a new joint venture entity. And so I, I philosophically disagree with the implementation of the SBA's philosophy, but there it is. It's on the books. And you, if you're a contractor, you need to know it and follow it and, and make sure that you're not exceeding either of those targets. Yeah, yeah, really great points there. And in fact, it, it brought up, I know that was my last question, but I have one more based on what you just said. And I, I see this very popular in construction, and I know why they do it this way. You know, you'll see construction companies that every single contract they go after has its own joint venture. Even if it's with the same team, they will put together a new joint venture just for that particular contract. Do you think that's smart to do that? Like, you know, for literally every time we're going to go bid on a contract, we're going to form a joint venture for that. We, you know, it's going to have all its own entity information, bank accounts, all that. Is, is that a good approach or should they be looking at it from this perspective of, well, let, let's focus on if we're going to have the same team, let's do the same joint venture and run, you know, three contracts through it before we do the next one. What, what's your advice on that? Yeah, and I'm, you know, I think it's it's doable either way. You know, I think that from my side, from the compliance side, three and two rule, you you don't necessarily have to form a new joint venture every time you bid. There may be reasons that you want to do it. For example, you may say, hey, this joint venture 
is going to pursue small business set-asides. That one's going to go after 8A. That one's going to be the one, the 8A one, that is requiring pre-approvals for all amendments and so on. This one does not. So there may be structural reasons why you would want to do two joint ventures, three joint ventures, even before you hit three and two, uh, often because you're using one for a different class of socioeconomic certifications. Uh, there may also be liability reasons. You may say, hey, we're going to do, we're working in a, an industry in which there's liability issues, there's bonding issues, you know, things like that. We would like to make sure that if there's a problem on this contract, <laughs> that our liability is just for that contract, that this entity isn't coughing up its profits from other jobs. Because of, So there may be those reasons too. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't have an objection if someone says, hey, I'm going to, you know, for, for whatever reason, there's a logical reason here, even though we haven't hit three and two, I'm going to go ahead and form a new joint venture. There's no, no problem with that. Um, Maybe a little more paperwork on the front end, but there may be perfectly good reasons to, to do that. Yeah. So, so the, to boil it down is there may be good reasons, but there also, you don't necessarily have to do that if you're within the three and two and you're using the same team where I, again, I, I think that is a misconception from some people who, again, they learn it from say the construction industry who, like you said, there's a really good reason there's bonding issues. There's other issues, really good reason. And they're using different teammates, you know, typically uh, from one contract to another. And this kind of bleeds over into it or other worlds where they think, Hey, every time, you know, they've gotten that advice from their buddy, their friend who says, every time you do a contract, it needs to be a separate joint venture. And so, like you said, there's times it makes sense and there's times it doesn't. So figure that out without doing all the extra paperwork <laughs> if you can, I guess. Right. So, so. Right. And, and that's right. I mean, then people often make decisions based on what their buddy did or they heard something somewhere. And, and it's good to kind of run that to ground and ask yourself, hey, is this is this information I got correct or not? Or am I doing something that I need to do or not? And then make that decision. Again, in this case, forming a new joint venture with the same partner may or may not be advisable. It's, but it's not for three and two for affiliation compliance. It's not, not required for each and every contract you go after. Right. Right. No good. Great points. Uh, we went way over on time today, but I think, you know, everything that we talked about was really good. And, and I, I tried to ask questions, from the perspective of listeners who just this is these are the questions they're going to ask and so i think you provided great answers for them if anybody's listening and you you you're looking for the big takeaway today call steven and his team before you get into a lot of trouble with this stuff just just give them a call you know you're doing agreements you're getting involved in in the mender protege or, or joint ventures call them beforehand and it'll save a lot of trouble. So, so Steven, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And I know you've got a lot of big plans for some things in, in 2018 and we want to have you back on and, and talk about some of those things as they start to come out and, uh, and keep you on as a regular here. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Michael. Again, my, my pleasure. I'm glad we were able to have, a, I think a really good discussion here. And I certainly any of your listeners that have, have questions on what you heard here, I encourage you to, to reach out to me, uh, you can reach me by phone, 785-200-8919, or by email, s-coprince at coprince.com. And uh, and for those that are driving in the car, listening to this or whatever, we're going to have all that information on the website later. So you'll be able, if you go to the website, 
you'll be able to get uh, Stephen's contact information and all that. So, so thanks again to Stephen. And I also want to take a minute to thank all our listeners for joining us today on this episode. Remember, you can find every episode on iTunes. Just look for Game Changers for Government Contractors and subscribe to the feed to make sure you get every episode. And while you're there, you can do us a favor and rate uh, the episodes. That'd be great. Uh, and last but not least, please visit our sponsor for today's episode, the Federal Access Program at federal-access.com. When you visit the site, you'll learn how to get a free copy of the government sales manual and please be sure to tune in next week for lessons from our experts on how you can win more government contracts thanks for listening to game changers for government contractors for a full list of episodes and other resources be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash game changers